Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is FolkPod, the podcast where we'll hear from some of the most prolific and talented musicians on the folk scene. Get ready for a deep dive into a life lived through music in the studio, on the road, and now more than ever, online. If we're lucky, they might even play us a tune and help us figure out what folk music is really all about. Before we get started, a little bit of business. FolkPod is a labor of love, and a whole lot of work goes into every episode. I've heard from a lot of you how much you're enjoying it. So we've put a virtual tip jar up on our website, thefolkpod.com. Please consider leaving us a tip to help pay for the real costs that go into creating this series. There are other ways that you can show your appreciation, too. Like and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TheFolkPod. And leave us great reviews to help other fans find us. And now, on to this week's guest, Vance Gilbert. I'm just going to go with the quote on his webpage from Richmond Magazine, which states, If Joni Mitchell and Richie Havens had a love child with Rodney Dangerfield as the midwife, the results might have been something close to the great Vance Gilbert. Welcome, Vance. I don't get no respect. Why is this kid light brown? What's going on here? Did you ever meet Rodney Dangerfield? I didn't. I never met Rodney Dangerfield. I met Joni Mitchell and Richie Havens, but not Rodney Dangerfield. It's an interesting group to put him into. Welcome, Vance Gilbert. I'm so excited to have you on this show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is so nice that you would think of me for this. Oh, are you kidding? You were one of the first people on my sort of wish list, I think, from the get-go of this inception of this show. And we've been having a lot of fun. And I need you to know that I'm coming off of listening to the completed version of the episode with Ellis Paul, which I didn't tell you I just did. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yes. And it was so awesome. Of course, we talked about you. I'm sure your ears were burning. Hey, hey, I'm Ellis. Yeah, Ellis Paul, he's one of my best friends, but he does sound like a cross between Arlo Guthrie and Liberace. He's sort of right in that <laughs> sweet spot right there. Yeah. Oh, we had some fun. And he actually offered you up sacrificially to come back on the show, the two of you, and chat. I think the audience would have so much fun if the two of you just came on and went for it. Oh, we'd have a ball. Yeah. We'd have a ball. So you've been voluntold. That's fine. He's one of my closest friends. He's the guy to whom I could tell pretty much anything without judgment. Everybody needs those kind of friends in their life that they can spill their stories to when they need to. He said the same about you and told us a little background story about how you guys met. I would love to hear your version. Oh, it's pretty much the same version. It was a bordello. Uh, no, it was... Um, <laughs> No, there was an open mic series at this little upstairs foyer between offices in Brighton, Massachusetts. We just fell in love with each other when we heard the other one sing. And we've held each other to a high standard since. I think there's a lot of performance things that Ellis has picked up from me. And one of the things I've picked up from him is one of the greater things, cornerstone things, is truth in song. I mean, really going for language wow. in the song that tells the story. Between the two of us, we've come up with a pretty fair body of work, but neither one of us will let the other one slide when it comes to performance or songwriting. That's amazing. You're so lucky to have that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I'm telling you. And, you know, the thing is that we go through great stretches now, not being in touch. We've both gotten sure. busy. He's got two kids and we live a thousand miles apart from each other. But that having been said, the other one is ringing in the other's ears. Oh, wow. 
when it comes to whatever the next rung is supposed to be huh. on this songwriter episode. It's just a great relationship. It's magical. Me. It is very magical. That's magical. It is magical. Yeah. We're lucky. Very lucky. Yeah, you guys are. I have to say, I did watch his birthday show on Facebook Live, and hands down, the best thing I've ever seen is you ad-libbing a song in honor of him, sort of taking the chords that he would use and... Were you making that up? Oh, no, no. I wrote that. That song is written. However... Is it really? I wrote it that evening over a couple of wings. I was eating wings, <laughs> and I wrote it in about 15 minutes, but I did not make that up. That was actually as it was. Oh, it was brilliant. Thank you. It was really fun to do. It was just brilliant. It's a kind of you-had-to-be-there thing, but it was a lot of fun because he does have sort of a method to his songwriting and a particular sound that he gets <laughs> in... His storytelling method that is quite imitable. But you putting the capo up to the 55th fret on the guitar and just was like... Right? That was great. I mean, why even bother with the rest of the guitar? Man? It's just like a waste of money. I capoed way up here. It was kind of like yeah. this. It was way up there. All that little... All that teeny fuzzy stuff. You see how not clear it sounds? You have to be Ellis Park to get that to sound good. <laughs> and he does. Oh, he does. He does. He makes yeah. the guitar sound like a mandolin when he needs to. And when he plays high on the guitar or he plays the substitute for it, when he plays his high strung guitar, mm -hmm. I guess you could call it. It's another world. It's another world. It always suits the song. Oddly enough. Playing high like that adds a, a fair amount of intimacy to whatever the song is. Hmm. And that's always an incredibly exciting thing to me that, honestly, Cheryl, that I have just started really experimenting with. Wow. For example, when I do the cover of, of um, that old Wildflower tune. She's fans the hardest times you could imagine. And many times her eyes held back the tears that's capoed way up on the guitar is it that a cry for she's a lady that a dream for she's a child let the rain fall down upon her She's a free and gentle flower Growing wild She's a flower Growing wild She That's an Ellis Paul thing, to learn to just bring things up and use the instrument so that it's ringing where you want it to ring. Right. I thank him for that. That's wonderful. Particularly since I'm better at it than he is now. There, I said it. <laughs> there, I said it. Damn it. <laughs> and you got the last word because this interview is happening after his interview. So there you go. I'm second. That's it. <laughs> no. It's February and I'm black. So that's how that goes. No. <laughs> this is my month. This is my month. You're the fifth interview today. No, come on. No, I'm just playing. But you know what? You're my Valentine's interview. Oh, my God. You just made me squishy. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you so much. I got to ask you. Shoot. I don't know anything about your musical background. Like, you know, how young were you when you picked up whatever instrument was the first instrument? And when did you know you had the beautiful voice that you have? 
Oh my gosh, you're so funny to ask this. How long do we have? Until you're told dinner's ready. I, I, so, <laughs> I was born, no, I picked up the guitar really for the first time my sophomore year in college. Wow. And that would be sometime in like 1976. Okay. And it's because everybody else had guitars. I, I also had a bass. I started playing bass in the various funk bands and R&B bands on campus. I wasn't very good at either. I was listening to a lot of jazz rock. Mm -hmm. I don't know when you're airing this, but previously this week we lost Chick Corea. Oh, I know. And it was kind of a heartbreaker, definitely a heartbreaker, not even kind of for me, because that album, Light is a Feather, with Stanley Clark and Flora Purim and Erto Muera, all these players were like seminal. They were in that stack of albums that included Stevie Wonder's songs in the Key of Life. Mm -hmm. Some Leo Kotke was in there, and Bonnie Raitt, and James Taylor, and Earth, Wind & Fire. Right there is a reflection of the mixed bag of music that I came from. Where did you go to school? Connecticut College in New London, Connecticut. Okay. And I got my degree in biology. Right, which I know, which a lot of people don't know. I had to get a degree in something, and it wasn't going to be music, because I'd already gotten... <laughs> partial way through this biology degree, and I was on student loans and some scholarships, so I really couldn't change majors to be a music major, and I really wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do, per se. So biology was sort of the route you were going, yeah. and what kind of jobs did you see yourself in? I wanted to do research on, like, insect populations and stuff like that. I don't even know what that meant. I don't even know what that means today, but that's what I wanted to do. Wow. And I got the degree in field biology, which is ironic because okay. when it comes to actual field biology, my partner knows so much more about how ecosystems spiral and work within each other than I do, or at least equal to what I do. But that's what I got the degree in. But at the same time, I was playing a lot of music and trying to play some tennis on a tennis team. I was kind of a mixed bag guy. Oh, tennis. Did you see tennis as being a part of your future? I did. I thought maybe I would coach a high school team. You know, I never turned up to be good enough to play on a satellite circuit or anything like that. At 12 or 14, I won my city champs in Willingboro, New Jersey. But then I just got eclipsed. There were just people that were better than me. Even in college, I played a little bit of doubles. I didn't play much on the team. I really wasn't competitive. I really wasn't a competitive person. That's interesting. You need that. You do. Yeah, you need that drive. and. I would step around my forehand to hit a backhand because it's a prettier stroke. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you do that? You're standing there with the forehand. I said, I like to hit backhands. Did you like playing doubles preferred over singles? No, I liked playing singles, actually. Okay. I didn't want to be blamed for something I'd miss. <laughs> I was readily a solitary kid. I basically had three parents. I had two actual parents and a brother that was 10 years older than I am. So that made me sort of like having three parents. Okay. I was able to self-entertain pretty well. So I did well on my own. Right. I didn't have to share with another kid. But you didn't have any singing or any music in school? No. We belonged to an Episcopalian church, so singing wasn't entirely soulful. No offense. I hope I didn't offend anybody out there. But, <laughs> but I was in that choir. For, uh -huh. you know, a stretch. And that was the only singing I did until I got to college. But everybody in college had a guitar. Cheryl, everybody. Was that to meet girls? Be honest. Some of them. Okay. Some of them. Some people just were always high and wanted to act like they were in the Grateful Dead. Yeah. <laughs> 
I straddled different classes of folks there. Okay. No, this was a college that was over 90% white. Right. So I would hang with the black folks a bunch and play with some of the funk guys that were coming up through that. And I was also hanging out with the acoustic people that were playing all the James Taylor and everything else. I was a mixed bag coming up. So were you writing your own songs or playing covers? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I was doing both. Yeah. Okay. I was writing very early on trying to write my own thing. Yeah. I didn't really think the two were separate. I was poor at both. So why not do both? You know, if you're going to be (laughs) a mediocre or bad at something, why not do it all? See, that's not what Ellis told us. What he told us was, if I may... Go ahead. ...is that you were the best there was when he first met you, that he'd never seen anything like it or heard anything like it. Well, you have to understand, I graduated college in 79, and by the time I met Ellis and company, that was 89. Oh, wow. Okay. So there was a decade in there where when I came out of college... I took my biology degree and did what most people do with a biology degree. I started cooking in restaurants. Did you really? Oh, yeah. I cooked in a couple of restaurants in Cambridge area. Chef Vance. Well, I won't say chef. I can get around. I was doing that. And my goal in life, Cheryl, honest to God, my goal in life was to have a three night a week gig somewhere hmm. playing the great American songbook. Oh. That is all I wanted to do. No kidding. The whole idea of getting in a car and driving around or flying somewhere to play was utterly abhorrent to me. Uh That's not what I wanted to do. And I was cooking, playing weddings, playing the occasional cocktail gig. And then when I stopped cooking, I Mm -hmm. became a multicultural arts dude in the Boston and Cambridge area public schools. So I was kind of a, excuse expression, gun for hire. I would be brought in by these arts groups to help kids write songs that their puppets would sing. (laughs) Did you like working with kids? I did. I did. I was good. I think I was good working with kids, but there's a burnout to that. The world was changing. Kids and behavior and what they brought to school and such was changing. I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I really wanted to be this cocktail guy. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be the guy that when you went to the hoity-toity bar in your major city, Mm -hmm. And there was a cocktail pianist with a bow tie or a flowing gown. I wanted to be that person standing in the crook of the piano playing guitar. Wow. Annoying the manager of the club that I wasn't using the piano (laughs) and playing guitar. (laughs) That's incredible. Did you get to do that? I did. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. For a little bit. Yeah. It was a place right down in the center of Boston that I did it for about three years. And various other little places like that. And then... Somebody invited me to an open mic, a couple open mics around this area. And then somebody invited me to a show Wow! at this club called the Old Vienna Coffee House. Mm-hmm. And he said, come here, this woman sing. She's really kind of cool. And people say she might get a record contract. I think you'll dig what she does. So I said, OK, I'll go. So I got in my Volkswagen bug <laughs> and I drove out there in the rain and I heard this woman sing and From that point on, I wanted to be like a five foot, seven inch white woman. (laughs) It was Sean Colvin. Oh, wow. No kidding. Oh, I was blown. I was blown. I said, this is what I want to do. The songs were impressionistic and perfectly worded. Her time, you're a percussionist. Mm -hmm. Who else can go out and make a solo album that you go back and put drums on? (laughs) Seriously? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that about her. Oh, that live album? Mm -hmm. There's some rhythm stuff on there. That's post. Hmm. That stuff was put on their post, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't know that. She's a great guitarist. 
And she's a great guitarist because you don't notice her guitar playing. Yeah. Because it's so supportive of her broken wing bird singing. Her songs. And the stuff that she's singing. Yeah. And that's all I wanted to be. I wanted to be a little white lady. That's fascinating. How's it working for you? I'm still not little or white. <laughs> I approach the other stuff as best I can, but <laughs> that story, watching that show saying, I'm going to continue to play this open mic out here. I want a gig at this place in a year. <laughs> and in three years, I want to open for Sean Cole. That was my goal. Did you get to open for Sean? I did. I had a gig there at that club in about three months. <laughs> and in a year and a half after that, I opened the whole Fat City tour when that album came out. Like what age were you at at that point? A little bit later on, right? Oh, this is just after hanging with Ellis Paul and all these folks at this open mic. This was uh, okay, yeah. 91 going into 92. Kind of into your 30s? And... Yeah, let's see. I was born in 58. Okay. I was early 30s. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it is very cool. You know what? I guess that's kind of how, I mean, I started hanging out at the Fast Folk Cafe in New York. That's the first time I'd ever gone to an open mic in my life. Uh, how old were you? I guess I was 30. <laughs> I was 30. I'm finding more people that discover this music and their potential participation in it later. Yeah, yeah. And this is something I'll say that maybe other people out there can take with them. It takes as long as it takes. You know, if you discover something and you're 60 years old when you finally realize you can sing most of a tune 90% in pitch, hmm. that's how long it takes. You have to understand that other people started taking lessons at five to nine years old. That wasn't me. I'm a decade behind. Ah, hmm. oh, man. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I always tell people I'm about 10 years behind my friends or my peers or, or whatever. Sure. Yeah. That's funny sure. you say that. When you benchmark against people that are coming up at you here, like, <laughs> I mean, there's people you just shake your head, like Ed Sheeran or Amy Winehouse. <laughs> yeah. To bring it even closer to home, Martin Sexton. These people come out, they come out at birth like monsters. <laughs> and you can't judge by that. It takes as long <laughs> for you as it takes for you. It takes as long as it takes. That's all it takes. Yeah. What's that old Miles Davis quote that says, I'm going to butcher it. Sometimes it takes your whole lifetime for you to sound like yourself. Ooh. Right? Yeah. It's true. I mean, that's just how it is. But why are we always so in a rush when we're younger, think that we don't have enough time or we got to do it now? And what a shame. Because I think that kind of anxiety, oh my God, I, I sound like such a man. I have no. an answer for everything. No, 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 no. Am I that kind of guy? Am I that kind of guy? <laughs> well, let me fix that, Cheryl. <laughs> I can fix that for you. No, but you know, you have experience and I love that you and Ellis give to the younger folks coming up. I love that you mentor. Oh, yeah. I mean, I want to talk about that as well, but it's just part of who you are. So please go. I think the answer to that is that kind of anxiety is the handmaiden of drive. <laughs> yeah. You want that stuff and you also see the clock ticking. Yeah. I took the day off today, but I'm running three to five miles a day because I realized with the pandemic going on, I need to get the weight down and keep it off. And yep. I also need to be able, when the time comes, to be able to stand up and deliver a set. No kidding, right? Are you a little nervous about that? Not now, no. I'm in what I would call fair shape. Mm-hmm. And I've been playing once a week. Yep, you've been doing your Monday night pajama parties. Yeah, Vance Gilbert's Monday night acoustic pajama party. So much fun. Yeah, every Monday night we're coming up on number 48. Wow, make sure you check that out, people. Vance Gilbert's Facebook page. Yeah, check it out. You look up Vance Gilbert on YouTube and you'll find one of these things. And you'll find a live one on, on Monday night. And the amazing thing is you will play an original song and then you'll jump to like some obscure jazz piece, and then who knows what you're going to pull out of your bag. Do you 
put a lot of time into putting a set together or do you just wing it? Yes, both. Some <laughs> of my Fridays through Sundays are about putting a set together. Okay. About once every month or so, I have a no agenda night where I just come on and play what comes to my mind. Do you take requests? I forget if you take requests. Yeah, I kind of do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Like you'll check out, you know, the flow of the chat. Yeah, I take requests. I mean, and part of that capability comes from those years of playing cocktail music. Hmm. You call it cocktail music, but there's some great musicians that come through. Oh, God, yeah. Play great stuff and just find a steady gig. Yeah, all life experience is good experience. Right, right, exactly. Obviously, we all had to adjust pretty quickly on the fly and learn a lot of new tech stuff, figure the virtual concert thing out, but... Besides obviously missing the audience, how are you faring as far as all this is going? Well, it's hard not actually standing and delivering a show. It's odd mm -hmm. to sit and do what I'm doing. Although I think it was Greg Brown that said to me some years ago talking about performance. He says he stands when he wants to deliver a show and he sits when he wants to be intimate with the song. Oh, interesting. And that's why when you see Greg do a show from time to time, does he stand or does he sit? And you have to say yes. Yeah. I think sitting has been giving me an opportunity to be very intimate yep. and to dig into tunes. I'm quite enjoying it. I would like to be able to, when the world opens up and becomes well, I'd like to be able to stand and do the same thing. Not that I couldn't, mm -hmm. but you tend to sing a little bigger when your ribcage is off your knees. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's odd. I've been teaching a little bit of performance about performance online like this. And one of the things is when somebody finishes a song... That it's okay to have a moment of quiet. Let it ring. Let it be quiet. And thank you. Rather than, oh my God, I wish you were here. Then you could be clapping. It's like, you're making me nervous. Please be quiet between the songs. <laughs> Folks, for people who do not know Vance Gilbert, one of the most amazing things you will ever see in your life is what Vance will do at a workshop at these Folk Alliance conferences where he critiques your performance. So you get up, you usually find some poor kid in the front row who's really nervous and shaking and wears glasses and a hat, pull him up on stage, make him sing a bit of a song, and then you rip him apart and it's the best thing ever. It is the best thing ever. It is. Yours is a mischaracterization of what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, you have to know your audience. You have to know your audience. I know you know. I know. Uh, but you have to know the audience. Some people, if you've worked with them before, you could rip into them and have some fun. But some people really are very timid. No, no, I know. And first thing you do is I clearly emphasize what they're doing right. And then I started to peel away the onion. And that's when these various things come to light. And right. I try to be intuitive and I try to be fitting. Mm -hmm. Well, when people take these workshops as a group, there are pros there, people I tour with, and there are rote beginners and they can all learn from each other. Sure. Particularly if you take a rote beginner and put them up and do this. Absolutely. They're so virginal in a way that you actually get great things done with that individual. I've seen you transform you know, a young singer-songwriter right before my very eyes as far as performance goes. Somebody who's nervous and maybe hasn't only done open mics and you basically show them how to be an entertainer. That's what you're doing. It's palpable, isn't it? I love it. I love it too. What I love about it is that it also makes me feel like I'm getting something done. Because here's the deal. If I can help this 
open mic purveyor to be better at their open mic. And they are going to this open mic weekly at this place. And they are better at this open mic. And people are watching them. And the level of music is better at this open mic because of the little bit of study they've done for me. And more people come in. That helps me when I come to town. Sure. Because people will say, oh, that's the place that's had the open mic on Monday. And it's actually pretty good. So I would imagine the music that's coming there Friday night with this Vince Galbert guy, <laughs> maybe this is going to be a good night as opposed to, oh, my God, I met a friend there for a drink and oh, the performers were horrible. I'm not going there again. Yeah. Yeah. People do that. You're right. They do. So it's a tide that raises all ships. Now, do you do this online for people now? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. I do. I do it online now. I do it online and have them examine the online aspect yeah. of doing this, like I was talking about. And also, just in general, I do some song coaching. Uh -huh. I coach voice. The thing I don't do a whole lot of coaching on is actual beginner guitar. Okay, right. That's probably where I'm weakest. I can show people what Vance does on the guitar. Mm -hmm. One of the things I do with guitar is I help people get the guitar out of the way. Yeah, that's great. Isn't that? I mean, I think that's one of the key things is yeah. teaching people that they don't have to always play. Just because there's six strings on the guitar doesn't mean your hand has to be going through them all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, your jazz background. I mean, is that self-taught? Did you take guitar lessons? I mean, where does the jazz stuff come from? I took a couple lessons from a guy that was teaching around here in the uh, early 80s, a guy named Ron Murray. I also took with a guy named Ross Adams. I took one lesson with Ron and one lesson with Ross. One of the things I like to do is moving bass. Ooh, yeah, yeah. And particularly when you're playing a jazzy kind of song, it makes you sound like you're simultaneously playing bass yeah. and the chords. And it might sound like... And that's a lot of fun because then you can take any tune and play a swing bass line over it and sound like you know everything about jazz. <laughs> and that's like self-taught, more or less. Well, I picked up something from each of these guys on that. Yeah. A lot of chord books and a lot of listening. I did a lot of listening. I think one of my favorite guitarists of all time is the great Wes Montgomery. Hmm. I don't know Wes. Black guitarist that came out of the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Sort of a post-bebop guy. Did a lot of okay. octave playing. The list goes on. And then there's many of the acoustic people. I remember I used to spin quite a bit of Leo Kotke. Oh, yeah. So my Travis picking is not horrible. Oh, it's awesome. Are you kidding me? And then there's just your general finger style kind of thing that I would pick up from either James or Livingston Taylor albums and all the albums that everybody had coming up in that era. Mm -hmm. Just an amalgam of all those things. Last but not least, you hear something and you say to yourself, I need to find a way to do that. It more comes out of necessity, huh. trying to figure out what people are doing and how you could possibly affect that on your instrument. Oh, God. I think that's the greatest teacher. It's amazing. You're an incredible teacher and like the best student. You're very kind. I think I'm a pretty fair listener. I think that is a big plus. I think I can see what's coming down the pike musically or what's coming down the pike from whoever this student is and what they need. 
and what's going to drive them off of this stage in fear or give them the opportunity to say, I can be just one iota better if I do that. Wow. Yeah, you do. You listen. I wish I had met you when I first picked up the guitar and went to an open mic in New York because I was deathly afraid. Deathly afraid. Oh, well, sure. Sure. People feel like they need to play a block of sound. And the people that get this early, the people that get this music thing early are the ones that are so confident enough to leave space. Uh, that's it. Less is more. Yeah. It took, oh, Cheryl, it took, <laughs> oh my God, 20 years of playing to learn <laughs> to stop playing. Wow. To shut up. Stop playing so damn much. That's the best quote ever. That's it. It's the twist on the Miles Davis yeah. quote. Yeah. Just get the guitar out of the way. Let people know that you can play it. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be the bedrock of everything. The truth is that I think a lot of people also come up listening to someone that was a wall of sound, uh, like Dylan. <laughs> yeah. Hey, no. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Band, play a song. And it's like, it's like... He's on top of everything. He's on top of everything. He's a wall of sound. Yeah. It's also Dylan. Huh. He's being iconic. There's a thing he's doing. There's this back porch making your sound at the end of the day with a wrenched hands Woody Guthrie sound that he's got. But he knows when to get out of the way. Yeah. People don't recognize, first of all, they don't recognize what a great guitarist he is. His time is insane. Interesting. Nobody's ever said that. Yep. Oh, his time is great. You're right. Another great guitarist coming out of that era. I'm going to make you guess. Who am I going to say who has like five guitar styles under their hands? Their time is unbelievable and they know what to play and when. Hmm. Who? Joan Baez. Really? Joan's really? guitar playing is monster. Do you know who taught Joan? Who? Debbie Green, Eric's first wife. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, taught her how to finger pick and taught her how to play that sort of folky style. Oh, man, that folky style that she also has down. Yeah. I was nothing to him, and he was the world to me. She knocks that out of the park, man. Yeah. I'll never forget. <laughs> I taped a bunch of classic stuff by her, and she's doing those old child's ballads, and huh. it was a phase I was in, too. too. I was listening to her. Yeah. Ugh. I think you've obtained the small white woman status right there. Oh, man, I had that, and I also wanted to be June Tabor. Oh. I wanted to be June Tabor in such a bad way, singing oh. a cappella and getting out of the way of the tune. Man. Wow. Okay, so I have a question for you. Yeah. You have this incredible wit and funny side to you. Oh, my God, I'm so funny. I love me. But the most tender, beautiful songwriting side of you, what showed up first? Like, were you always the funny guy? Wow. Silence. Silence sucks when it comes to podcasts. <laughs> Here's the deal. I think I was probably funny and witty, all of those things that I needed to be to survive in this body of this frightened, sensitive boy. So I think I'm both. Hmm. I think you'll hear more of one than the other in front of a crowd because it sells more CDs. Yeah. But honestly... Oh, my God. If given my druthers hmm. on that big, great cocktail gig in the sky that I'm talking about, mm -hmm. I could play ballads all night long. Get out. Really? Nothing up-tempo. Nothing I would love more than to just start the evening with. Nobody feels any pain 
And by the end of the evening, I'd be at sweet, sweet little love. The day still lingers. I would be forever wow. playing ballads all night long. Dude, I had no... Well, you know, I kind of guessed because you're so good at it. Oh, well, you're very kind. I think it's what knocks everybody's socks off because, of course... Those of us that get to see you, not just in concert, but at events like the conferences, we get the funny side and we love the funny side, but there's nothing like you just shutting the door with a beautiful love ballad that comes out of nowhere. You just knock us right off our feet. Oh, well, it's so nice to hear it. And that's confidence. If that was me 20 years earlier, okay, it would be the biggest, loudest song I could come <laughs> off with. Okay. Because I'm basically insecure and a show-off. Right, okay. <laughs> and a bit of an asshat. That is what I wanted you to see me. I want you to see who and what I am. And the best way for me to do that is to shout at you. So it could bring me to a you know an interesting question, given the times we're in and the times that you were coming up into this white singer-songwriter world. What was that like? Well, you know, to be clear, I wasn't ever really playing for great groups of black people either. Nope. How do I frame this? It's a sea of white faces. There's no getting around it. Yeah. And we joke about it and you joke about it on stage and it's funny, but it's not funny. You know, it's something you've had to live with all this time, yet you've stuck around and you are this force of nature. I don't know what we would do without you. I don't know what it would do without me either. <laughs> That'd be some pretty existential shit. I just not like existed in my own yeah, thing. Yeah. I think this acoustic listening audience is just white by nature, but they were also the audience that was willing to hear me tell a story. Right. And that's an important part. It is. You know, I wasn't studied enough to be the heavy jazz cat. Mm. And let's tell the truth. A great jazz quartet that's crashing and hitting it. People that are going to hear that are white, too. True. Even the greatest black jazz was mostly white people going to hear that. So where is the black audience? What is the black audience listening to? You tell me. I think a lot of it is economic, that they don't necessarily get to go out to hear all kinds of music. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And maybe there's a lot of large, more stadium-based R&B. And then there's the folk music of the black community, which come 1978 was hip-hop. Yeah, and then rap. And rap. You know, how much of that could I embody? Well, I embodied a little bit of it, but I really wanted to hang on a melody and harmony. So cool. I couldn't stay in that genre. Yeah. I couldn't even tiptoe in that genre for very long. Hmm. But there you have it. So this is where I landed. I kind of landed where the music took me. Yeah. I occasionally work with groups of people that are trying to bring this music and spread it out in the black community. Victory Boyd. I don't know if many people have heard her. Look her up. I mean, my gosh. She's uh, acoustic mm. and she's young. She's 20. So the songwriting is a lot of it is kind of back to back. Oh, why don't you love me like I'm loving you? Yeah. Yeah. A little angst. But she's young. Right. And acoustic. And of course, she's getting compared to somewhere between Lauren Hill and Roberta Flack. And you could see where that would live. Wow. I'm not going to rap for rap's sake. And honestly... The handfuls of black people that do come to hear me come up to me and they say, this is great. This is great that, you know, we're being represented in this music or, hmm. and this may even sound racist to say, but uh, some people say, I didn't know this existed. I didn't know this could be that cool. Yeah. Oh, well, I believe that. And I wish they did. Of course. And not just because it'd be great to see black faces out there, but... Mm -hmm. You know, it's the whole equal opportunity thing. If you bring people into a fold, 
they're going to bring their bag of bananas with them. Sure. And their bananas are different than your bananas. Yeah. That makes great, great fruit salad. It's different. <laughs> it's just a great, new, fresh way to look at a thing. So grants are flying back and forth between some people that I'm working with to try to get me to work with a rapper that comes from Roxbury, Mass. Here. Interesting. We just missed out on one grant, but we're looking at another. And Okay. Yeah, why not? We're both storytellers. Oh, God, yeah. I'm a storyteller. You're a storyteller. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll be fun. Absolutely. I would love to see that. I would love to see that. Now, you got to tour with George Carlin, opening up for his show for... 150 dates. Sure. Mm -hmm. well, first of all, how did you land that gig? Second of all, just tell everybody what that was like. Well, the way I landed that gig was that the wife of George's manager heard me sing out at the Rocky Mountain Folks Festival out in Colorado, Lyons, Colorado. And uh, she went back and said, you should check this guy out. I think he'd be a great, like, foil for George, something different. So somebody else heard something that I did, and particularly when I did the big acapella King of Rome thing. Yeah. Next thing I know, I was opening shows for George, and they were taking me out on the road. And I had what I would like to say was the hottest 31 minutes of acoustic music in North America. Amazing. And the reason why I say that is because it had to be solid performance, top to bottom, for yep. that 31 minutes. You know, George's people, they wanted to hear the seven dirty words. Right, right. Or they wanted the conductor from Thomas to train. <laughs> there was like a whole mix of things. George had to inflict his great, heady humor on the other two-thirds of the audience, because there was a third of that audience that knew how brilliant he was. Yeah. If any of these George people are listening to this, maybe they see a mischaracterization, but this was my take on it. But I'll tell you what all those people did not want for 30 minutes up front. They did not want my ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want me up there. So I had to make them want me up there. By the time I'd gotten started and was singing, I'm imagining somebody turning to their partner well, I'll be damned, Martha, if this is folk music, this isn't so bad. <laughs> you know, what they're expecting with folk music is somebody tucking their chin in their chest. With a banjo on his knee. Yeah, right? It's like, oh my God, not this. Yeah, shoot me now. We just went yeah. to that open mic that other weekend with that yeah. guy that couldn't sing that never got trained. <laughs> Why would I hear that shit here? And then I come out. Did you win him over? Of course you did. Just enough rope. I was done. Before they would ask for Margaritaville. Let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would win people over. Was it intimidating? Yeah, there was a couple casinos in a couple remote places. They were shouting all through George's show. And oh, there were some things that he would say to stop the show. Hey, hey, hey. I drove up here. I saw my name on the marquee. I didn't see yours. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, he had some good ones. Did you get to hang with George Carlin? Yeah, a bit here and there. Okay. I actually got to fly on Ooh. his like rented jet a couple of times. Cool. Can I tell a great story about that? Oh, please. This is like perfect. Oh, my God. So a lot of people that know me more intimately know that I am also an amateur aviation historian. Yeah, that was my next question. So I build model aircraft. I <laughs> moderate numerous websites on Civil aviation, believe it or not. Okay. Do you actually fly yourself? No, I have no desire to be a pilot. Okay. How strange is that, right? No, nah, just curious. And the reason for that is I'd rather build models and fly them rather than be a pilot. And I take a line out of a Steve Forbert song 
that says something to the effect of, the only problem with owning a Jaguar is that you can never see it drive by. Oh, that's great. Yeah, isn't it great? That's great. I'm sure I'm misquoting that, and someone will correct me, but that's the concept. Have you always been into planes and aviation? Yeah, pretty much, Okay, since I was a kid. But no desire to be a pilot, because I'm afraid of heights. So. Oh, there you <laughs> go. But if somebody's asked me to go up in a small private plane, a tiny plane, I'll go. Oh, okay. But I'll have to change when I get down. <laughs> so here's the George thing. I get to be on this Learjet. And the other thing people don't know about George is that he can actually play some piano and sing. And he's a blues nut. Hmm. And I mean Chicago blues, all kinds of blues. He had this iPod loaded with blues stuff. And we're sitting facing each other on this Learjet. And they check us out and everything else. And they start up the engines and you're about to take off. And George is like, the first thing he says is like, well, once we're up and flying, please forgive me if I don't talk a lot because I'm writing a book and I'm going to be in my computer writing and all. But, you know, you can put in one of these earphones here and listen to some of this Big Mama Thornton is one of my favorites. He's got to talking about the blues and everything. But this Learjet was about to take off and it was... <laughs> spooling up at the end of the runway i'm feeling the sides of the plane and looking out the window and he says i'll never forget george saying oh i'll let you deal with this first you seem to be enjoying yourself uh, fine without me i was ignoring him here's george carlin is trying to school me on the blues and i'm feeling up the airplane Cheryl, it's a Learjet now. Come on, it's a Learjet. Of course. Oh, my God. You're an aviation buff. My head is cocked and I'm drooling out of one side of my mouth, looking at George, but not listening to a thing he says. He caught on. He says, oh, I'll let you be for a minute till we're at 23,000 feet. Something to that effect. And he rolls his eyes because he knows I'm an aviation nut. Okay, good. But man, yeah. Hey, listen, he didn't fire you on the spot. No. Although one of the things he wanted me to do was to sing The King of Rome, which is a tune done by both June Tabor and Garnet Rogers both do it. Mm -hmm. And June Tabor does it with a pad underneath, sort of a musical pad, but for all intent and purposes, it's a cappella. Okay. And I adopted it. That's one of the tunes that when I was singing it, I'd sing a big tune at the end of something. Yeah. That would be the tune. I was doing it at the end all by George shows, and they loved it because the audience was up and excited, and, and then George could come out and growl at them. <laughs> well, it was out with me mates for a pint or two When I saw a wing flash up in the blue Charlie, it's the king of Rome He's come back to his western home Come out quick, he's perched up on your roof Come on down, your majesty I knew you'd make it back to me Come on down, me lonely one Ye made me dream come true In the west end of Derby lives a working man Says I can't fly, but me pigeons can And when I sets them free It's just like part of me Gets lifted up on shining wings 
So one night, rather than the King of Rome, I came out and did an Al Jarreau thing. Could you believe in a dream when I tell you that it's true? And would you believe, precious friend of mine? And it's had a big high note in it and everything else. Could you believe in a dream when I tell you that it's true? And would you believe, precious friend of mine? Would you believe when it seems you are glad with what you do? It'll give you the courage to carry, the courage to carry, the courage to carry your spirit up on high, just to carry your spirit up on high. It went over nicely. Uh, George caught me backstage. He goes, nice set. Yeah, that's a nice tune. I'm really partial to the King of Rome, though. Which was as good as saying, you're going to end with that for the rest of this tour. Yeah. <laughs> or you're going to find yourself paddling back to Boston. Have a good day. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so That's so Hollywood-like, right? Oh, my God. It was so funny. It's so Hollywood. I love it. I am going to ask you to play a song, or if you might, but I have one question. What? Is there a song of yours that touches the audience that you might not have expected? That occasionally happens. I'm not sure I'm always surprised. I mean, this goes back to the thing with working with Elvis Paul. I, I try not to have songs that are particularly throwaway. Mm -hmm. yeah, right, of course. I think there's a little bit of meat and a modicum of potatoes to a good portion of the stuff that I do. Mm. But yeah, some people are really more moved by something than I would think. My hit. I'm doing air quotes and you can't even see me. <laughs> I say hit. No, I don't. And I'm doing air quotes, and people at home listening are going like, I hear you. He's an ass. He's in one of his own songs with a hit. What is wrong with him? Unfamiliar Moon okay, yes. is probably one of the tunes that hits people in the basket more often than I would have expected. Hmm. That might be the thing. Unfamiliar Moon Stars are out of place Everything is new Everything has changed Like a baby child Just has to cry when he sees it for the first time and he don't understand Now then there's no you Everything is new like this Unfamiliar moon And it's sung differently every night Wow, you see that's a jazz cat for you Yeah, it's not because I'm playing all these different alternate chords or melodies or anything. Mm. There's just slight changes in emphasis. I mean, it's probably more a mood thing rather than... Exactly. I mean, you're not bored of doing it, obviously, I hope. Exactly. Yeah. I think the alteration in the tune for me is, well, I'll give this characterization, but it's less Sarah Vaughan or mm. Ella Fitzgerald mm. and more Bette Midler and Barbara Streisand, where they <laughs> might push on something a little differently in different places. I try to be subtle. 
in the changes. That's so cool. Not too many people can do that. I don't know. I ask the world at large. Is it one of those things that people learn later in life? Or can you teach that? But you know what? I'm classically trained. And so even when I play my songs on guitar, I'm used to playing it the same way every single time. Is this classical guitar you're talking about? No, I'm a classically trained percussionist. Yeah, right, right. Guitar playing, I'm completely self-taught, so we won't even go there. But just the whole performance. Even if while I'm playing percussion, I tend to sometimes play the same thing with a little variation. That little variation is the key. Well, that's comfort, I guess. It's also drive. True. If you can keep it fresh for you, you're hoping you're keeping it fresh for your audience. There's a certain amount of drive involved there. True. When you pull up an Andre Segovia recording, I won't say he's taking liberties. He's playing the music. Julian Bream was the same way. They were inside the class of classical guitar. I guess you would say they were monster, great innovators. Mm -hmm. But there is definitely a different feeling to how each one of them would play Romanza. (laughs) Okay, yeah. It's just different because they're different. And I think that is what the musician brings to that. Do you do a disservice in telling people to play so exactly you could still play exactly and still play with the feeling that is all your own i'm convinced of that in any music genre absolutely no doubt about it and you can read that in a musician for sure yeah we're not going to quantize this stuff we're not going to put it up and dice it up and i've seen that done on album and the music dies Hmm. the music dies oh this drummer moved around you know they're ahead of the beat here they're behind the beat here let's quantize the snare And for the people who are listening, that means you take the snare sound and you sort of lift it out of the tune and you plop it down exactly where it needs to be everywhere. And it's like, you know what? Yeah. You just took the life out of the tune. No. I mean, perfect is boring. It's got to be boring. It's got to be boring. Yeah. Right. There's no doubt about it. So might might you do us a, a number? I'll do a number. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you want me to do a number? Might you play us a Vance Gilbert song? Yeah. Sure. Why not? Whatever you feel like playing. This is brand new. Wow, really? Well, I've been playing it for uh, about a month or two okay. now. I hope he's the one this time. He sees you as a mystery. And that he doesn't mind some history And understands that goodness Doesn't spring from nowhere I hope he's a wondrous time I pray to God that he's an A1 listener Fingers crossed that he's a kick-ass kisser And that he holds your hand For no good reason Who would hold against you? Are you meant to someone What fool will leave you broken Like the last one always does 
I hope he's the one this time May a party go on uninterrupted And as your heart gets reconstructed You untie the pretty bows of compromise Cue up the band and dry your eyes Say that he's the one Maybe he's the one I hope he's the one this time Exquisite Vance Gilbert. Thank you, love. Wow. Like I said, folks, he can make you laugh for an hour and then make you cry on a dime. This song is, oh, I love this song so much. Wow. Yeah. Thanks. That really is beautiful. So it's not recorded yet, obviously. No, no, that's not on anything. Wow. Right here, Folk Pod audience for you. That's pretty cool. That's pretty special. Thank you so much, Vance. Appreciate that. Well, can you uh, tell the audience the name of that song and any story that you might have about why you wrote it? It's called I Hope He's the One This Time. And it's written looking at a couple of women that I know that really Mm -hmm. would like to settle down with someone. And they have misfired in the last couple of loved ones that they've had. And they're friends of mine. So I hear the stories and I've And finger crossed for them that they are finding somebody finally that might work. This is their song. It's absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, man. Thank you so much. We had asked you at the NERFA conference to do our uh, keynote speech a couple years ago, and you hit that out of the park, and it was very inspiring, and I think that may even be up on YouTube. Yeah, it is, as a matter of fact. Oh, my folk community, my loving, well-intentioned folk community, my character-filled, incredibly skilled, strong-willed folk community, you're my family, and we're bound by story and sound. You laugh at my banter and playing, and you love when I sing. You give me a place to do all these things. You're always there to witness my story, and that's the most important part, because one day the voice will be creaky and broken, but the story in the song lives forever and ever. And I'm forever grateful. I love how you rail at the unfair, the evil, the hateful. You pay good money for my whole catalog. And some of you out there actually handed me money for a private party to help save my dog. And I'll never forget that. Oh, my folk community, my loving, well-intentioned folk community, my character-filled, incredibly skilled, love-instilled folk community, you're my family and we're bound by story and by sound. So if there are young artists or anybody actually out there who would like to see that, something worth watching. Where on the wild, wild, wild world web can people find you? I can be found at VanceGilbert.com and on all the social media things. And particularly, if you have half a mind to, 7.30 Eastern Time, On YouTube is Vance Gilbert's Monday Night Acoustic Pajama Party. And that is 48 nights running. And we are going right up to when we have a break in this COVID thing. Mm. 
It is your free entertainment. Little tip jar there if you want to, but come on over and experience all that is fast. Are you in your pajamas? Oh, yeah. In fact, when I send out my mailer, there's a little line that says pajamas and what I'm wearing that week for pajamas. Sounds a little weird, but... Okay. And the one question that I have to ask that I ask everybody that I've been dying to ask you and I kind of forgot... Yes, I do have airplane pajamas. Two sets. <laughs> Good. That's not it? Close. Uh, tell us something wacky, wild, cool, funny, silly about yourself that your audience has no clue about. Oh my gosh. Wow. Like, for instance, Carol Ann told our audience that she makes her bed every day. That's crazy. Making your bed every day. <laughs> that don't make no damn sense if you're going to get right back in it. What? Who does that? Who makes their bed? Carol Ann Solabello. <laughs> How can you expect anything to make sense from her? She sounds like a variety of mushroom. Doesn't she know? What kind of mushroom is on that salad? Uh, that's a Carol Ann Solabello. Oh, man. Well, somebody passed me the balsamic vinegar so I could enjoy this the way that needs to be enjoyed. <laughs> Okay. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm telling you You're evading you the question. I am hooked on Perry Mason rerun. Do not judge me. Do not. Why are you laughing? You can't. Cheryl. 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 I wasn't expecting that. Cheryl. Cheryl. You cannot. No. You can't ask people this. You can't laugh at them. You're right. Oh, dear. You're absolutely right. I can't. It's just wrong. Oh man, Perry Mason. That's awesome. Whew. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, Perry Mason. Eleven thirty every night. I'm in front of the TV watching Perry Mason. I love it. That's Vance Gilbert, folks. You got to find him. Just trust me. Find him, Vance Gilbert. That's it. Vance, you're awesome. I am awesome. I'm awesome tonight because you made me awesome. Thank you, Thank love. Thank you so much. This show is going to be a hit, and I hope you have me back when it's really big. Mwah. Love you. I hope that Folk Pod takes off and becomes a really great thing. Folk Pod. Ooh. Folk Pod. Bitches. There. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that was great. That was perfect. Folk pie. Sha la 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 folk pie. We're talking about folk music. I love that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. And now it's going to cost us a million dollars, right? <laughs> Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to Folkpod wherever you get your podcasts, and please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Folkpod. Thanks for listening, and hope to see you next time.